Welcome to another episode of the Granite List Live, where we talk about all things employee benefits and human capital. I'm Lee Dill. And I'm Sally Pace, and we are thrilled today to be joined by Jessica Lee, the CEO of Tria Health. I know we've had a number of conversations, and, and those of you that read our newsletter should be very familiar with all the wonderful things that Tria Health does. But today, we're going to really drill down on a very timely topic, something that's really getting a lot of national media attention, both on the consumer side and and today, of course, we're going to talk about it as it relates to the employer side. Jessica, we're going to talk about what we're seeing, the trend in um, the misuse of diabetes medication. But I guess before we dive right into that, will you tell a little bit about your background and about TRIA? Sure. I'm a pharmacist by training and got my start in my career um, actually working alongside physicians and setting up clinics where I worked with patients who had multiple challenges with their medications. So the doctor would get somebody multiple medications, 10 plus medications, and they'd say, hey, Jessica, can you help me figure out what to do with these individuals as it relates to their medication use? So that was kind of where I started in the academia arena and then got the opportunity to go work in the benefits arena where I spent several years working in a PBM where we worked on prior authorization criteria, helped um, self-insured employer groups really understand how to manage their pharmacy and drug spend. And then from that experience, knew that pharmacists were a real value in helping to help individuals who had chronic conditions and multiple medications, not only improve their health, but also protect the spend for the self-insured employer. And that is sort of where Tria Health was born. So the rest is history. And we continue to travel along the path, learning more and more each day and helping people along the way. And you guys are fabulous. And, and as a pharmacist by trade, you have such a knowledge base that you bring to this discussion and benefits in general. I mean, I know we hear about it from the PBM side, from the chronic condition management side, but what we're also hearing a lot of, whether you're in the benefits space or not, is this rise in the misuse of diabetes medication as primarily a weight loss tool. Can you help educate our listeners on what that is, what's happening right now? In the management of diabetes, we had some success in the last year or two with this class of drugs that we call the GLP-1s. I won't get into the technical, but many of us are very familiar because you can't watch any type of TV show or anything without hearing about Ozempic and its little catchy tune. But the good news is, is that for diabetics, this class of drugs has been sort of translational and helping to improve individuals who have diabetes with their blood sugars and long-term outcomes as it relates to improving their blood sugars. And also we're seeing some cardiovascular benefits from these drugs as well. So it was sort of a landmark and it has really changed sort of the place of many of our older drugs that had many different challenges and problems. And what we also discovered with the use of these drugs is, and, and not uncommon with many of our medications, is that one of the side effects or one of the sort of mechanisms that occurs when you use these medications is it actually also ensues weight loss. And so no surprise, manufacturers of these medications are good business people and they figured out there's some value in benefiting and marketing it in that way as well. And that's where we've now seeing sort of the benefit and birth of Wagovi, which is the same drug as Ozempic. It's just named something different, but it's caused a little bit of challenge in terms of benefits and access to the drug. So there's a win, but along with it comes sort of some challenges for employers who are paying for these medications. 
So what is the average cost of one of these drugs? The average cost of these is around, you know, twelve to fifteen hundred dollars a month. So we're not we're not talking about pennies to the dollar. We're talking about medications that, especially if they are going to be used long term, which many of these will be probably used for a while, especially in the diabetes arena, that's a lot of investment. Now I'm always very, very careful to point out, especially to employers who are self-sponsoring their plans, to remember that medications are not in a silo. They're in a combination of their health plan and their pharmacy plan, because obviously if we can help a diabetic improve their blood sugars, reduce their weight, and improve their outcomes, hopefully we're not seeing a lot of hospitalizations. We're not seeing any high-cost utilization channels. We're seeing some improvement in that for those individuals. But that's obviously the concern and challenge we have here. Mm-hmm. And you really have to weigh the risk and reward of someone who's not diabetic, but they are managing their health and they are trying to lose weight. What would be some of the negatives besides, you know, a, a true diabetic not having access because of production issues or something like that? But, you know, let's say I'm trying to lose weight and I'm not diabetic and I'm taking this drug. What would be my risks to that? Well, clinically, I don't know that there are huge risks. Other than I think the piece that we seem to forget in this big conversation with the media picking up the use of these medications in obesity, which obesity as a disease is definitely inflicting many Americans and inflicting many employer-sponsored plans. But I think that the challenge is, is that we don't know for sure if we're doing a great job of aligning not only the use of these medications for weight loss, but also the importance of a long-term lifestyle change. These drugs are going to reduce appetite. We're going to see upwards of 15 to 20% weight loss with some individuals who take this, but it can't be the long-term solution. So we've got to see sort of this combination of employers who are allowing access to these medications, if they choose to do so because they are wanting to sort of help tackle the obesity challenges, and we know that obesity has implications on several other chronic diseases, is that there has to be something that goes alongside these medications that helps people to understand the importance of good nutritional choices and moving the body because this is a long-term, lifelong thing. We don't have a cure for diabetes. We don't have a cure for obesity, but we have a tool that may help us. And passing along a question that we received earlier today from an employer group that has a lot of diabetes in their plan. They said, those that aren't diabetic that is taking this drug, can they become dependent on it? Is that something you've seen at all? So the use of the word dependent is sort of interesting there. So there's not any type of dependency yet that we think about in terms of like psychological or physical dependency that we know of yet as it relates to when we think about opioids, right? When we think about opioids, we think about physical and psychological dependency that we have some validation of. But what we are sort of, I think, concerned and aware of in the medical community is that these drugs are doing such a good job of reducing appetite. But then when you go off of it, we are seeing some people gain weight back probably related to potentially their appetite being back to where it was before. And maybe the weight gain also being related to the fact of they're not doing changes to the choices that they're making too, right? Like we're not fixing the problem. We're just helping to sort of give a jumpstart to the reduction of weight for these individuals. So I think when you say dependency, I think the concern is going to be that we're going to see some people who are going to struggle with their weight when they're not on these medications. And so the challenge is 
for employers, how long do we cover this for people who are taking it for obesity if we choose to cover it for obesity? And what's the skin in the game for the individual who's getting these medications? There's obviously value, but we've got to make sure that there's sort of a long-term plan for it. But you're not seeing anybody coming off of this and needing insulin on the back end or having blood sugar disorders or anything like that. We're not seeing that, but I always want to make sure everybody recognizes that when you launch a new drug and you're watching a new drug, you're going to continue to learn more and more about that. And I don't expect that to be what we see, particularly someone who didn't have any diabetes diagnosis before, but was obese. You know, obviously there's some correlation of sometimes when you're you're obese and you potentially are maybe on that verge of prediabetes, but we're not seeing people having sort of erratic blood sugar issues and insulin dependency issues secondary to the use of these drugs if that pathologically wasn't there before. So they didn't have that diagnosis before. I want to shift from the individual. We can come back to the individual in a little bit, but back to the employer. Can we talk about the implications for the employer-sponsored health plan and what you're advising both consultants and employers to be aware of? I mean, I think we're already seeing the employers that we're working with are already saying first quarter 2023, which we're not even really through yet. The PBMs are already reporting that this is in their top two, top three utilization and cost. So that's concerning, right? I think the other thing is, is that you want to make sure you provide access. I always sort of recommend for my employers that if you choose to provide access to drugs, i.e. access for this drug for people who are obese, that you do it in a way that puts skin in the game for them, but doesn't take away from access to the drug for people who truly need it because it's sort of second line therapy for diabetes. So it's a balance of sort of also understanding from an employer perspective, their ability to invest, how much they want to invest in this cause related to obesity but not omit access for people who truly have diabetes. And I think one of the challenges we're seeing is that everybody's struggling with what's the right formula for covering this on your plan and protecting the plan, but also giving access to it and doing it in a way that people aren't skirting the system for lack of a better term. Can you share the example? I know we were talking before the show about access to the drug and the workarounds that some members are seeing. Yeah, you know, I think that's where that's the balance that we're seeing. So I think some PBMs are trying to put a prior authorization in place for these medications. And what they're doing, for example, with Ozempic is they're saying if you've had a diabetes medication filled within the last 30 days, then the edit already allows for the Ozempic to go through. So in other words, you're seeing people filling metformin, which is very inexpensive, and then following up within the next two weeks to three weeks and getting the Ozempic immediately. So that's a challenge. Potentially, maybe if the diabetic sort of standard of care isn't being followed, but I think more importantly, if you've got someone who's using it for obesity and they're not diabetic, you can still skirt the system because you don't really have to have a diagnosis code of diabetes to make that happen. So I think that's what employers are concerned about is that they're not sure that the protection of access to the medications on their plan design is happening in a way that they intended to. A lot of folks are starting to look at evaluating, of course, spend, and I'll go back to the individual end user. If you were able to get in front of every employee in the U.S. that was 
thinking about this, considering it, or I guess your own team is talking to front lines, the employers and their employees about how they're good stewards of their dollars and their health. What are you telling them for the individuals? So I think that there's two sort of answers to that. I think as it relates to obesity, sort of how to cover these meds in the obesity arena. I think if the employer has made a commitment to giving access to medications in the obesity arena, I think it's important for them to not just provide access to the drugs, but also have some type of a plan in place that allows the employee or dependent on the plan if they choose to allow the access to the medications, some access to education and assistance and coaching related to how to use this drug appropriately and use it in context with the non-pharmacological lifestyle changes that are necessary with it. I also think that putting a limit on the amount of time for this drug access is critical too. Not because people won't benefit from it longer than the six-month time frame, but mostly because that puts a little bit of protection in place for the plan. And then also make sure that the member is adhering to the medication, that they're adhering to some of the coaching and non-pharmacological things that need to happen. And then also, there are some people that aren't going to respond to this drug or they're going to have tolerability issues. And you're going to know that in six months is plenty of time to allow access for that. And then the other sort of flip on the coin that we've been talking about for years in benefits is sort of this how much skin in the game for the employees so that they feel value for what they're doing. And we've, we saw that come from the years of value-based benefits design conversations. But if there's some skin in the game for the member, there's a value to what they're getting. And then there's a value placed on sort of the onus on them to be a part of that conversation of how they can improve their obesity. So that's kind of how it is with obesity. I think diabetes You've got to have access to it, but you've got to figure out how to, and I think prior authorization is necessary for all these drugs across the board. And it creates a hurdle for people, but I think that's the only way the plan can be protected. And you mentioned that the patent for this might be seven to nine years. So this is going to be a conversation. This conversation is not going to go away. And the next drug we're going to talk about, which is out on the market already, is Manjaro. I'm sure you guys have heard that one coming up now, too. And that one actually is a combo drug that has the GLP-1 in it, but it also has a GIP sort of mechanism in it. And it's actually showing higher weight loss than Ozempic and Wagovi. And it's going to probably be in the next wave of drugs and then beyond that, also, we're going to start seeing these come in oral form, too. So, you know, these are all right now injected subcutaneously. Mm. We're going to see orals of these follow on. So these drugs aren't going away for not only sort of the cost as it relates to diabetes, but also the costs related to obesity medications. So many important conversations to come for sure and important for plant sponsors to really think about how they want to approach the coverage of these types of medications. So who's going to be the first vendor to have free free drugs and coaching alongside it if you, you have the money? It's already pay. out. It's out there. I'm not going to lie. We are running into vendors who are just prescribing it pretty readily and not even necessarily with the coaching component to it. I think it's really critical for employers to really dig in and ask a ton of questions of a vendor who is doing an obesity program where they're allowing access to these medications and the employer's paying for it. They need to make sure they understand exactly what the skin in the game is for the member who's using these medications and then what they're getting as a part of that process. But there's direct to consumer related to this too, right? Some of our big name 
weight management companies that have been direct to consumer for many years, and I don't know if I necessarily need to name them, are advertising on the radio that they're using these medications and you have access to it. And the other side of the coin that we're seeing too is that medical weight loss facilities are compounding these medications and people are getting access to these medications through these medical weight loss boutique opportunities. So it's everywhere. Well, that's why I appreciate you saying that you challenge employers to really dig deep in the vendors they use, but I'll put a plug in and say that's why we also really want to encourage our listeners, consultants, employers, benefits leaders, that they have a partner in all of this through TRIA. And that's where we want to make sure that they are thinking about how this is impacting, again, their people, both, as you pointed out, these are two distinctly different conditions that are being treated and have different care paths, as well as protecting their bottom line. So, and we are proud to feature TRIA Health on the granite list, but if someone wanted to reach out to you, Jessica, and the team, what is the best way for them to start this conversation with TRIA Health? Well, I would say that sales at triahealth.com, T-R-I-A health.com, one word is one way. Our website, triahealth.com also as well. And then obviously hitting us up on LinkedIn if that's possible as well. But I think what we appreciate the opportunity to do with employers is go alongside them and make sure that we're helping them advocate for their best and then disseminating that advocacy to their membership, which is really important. Absolutely. Well, thank you for being such an incredible leader, not only in the chronic condition management space, but in the broader benefits space. I know you all are highly lauded. You've been validated. You have proven that you get the results you say you're going to get, that you do what you say you're going to do. So thank you once again for allowing us to partner with you at The Granite List. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to another episode of The Granite List Live. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Granite List Live. Access our entire library by visiting your favorite podcast venue or subscribe on our site, thegranitelist.live.